is this irresistible creature who has an insatiable love for the dead? Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. This week's selection is Dead of Night by Jonathan Mayberry. Mayberry is a New York Times bestselling and multiple Bram Stoker award-winning author, magazine feature writer, playwright, content creator, and writing teacher slash lecturer. His books have been sold in more than 20 countries, and he's also the author of the Joe Ledger series, a personal favorite of mine. A little bit about the book, Dead of Night. This is the synopsis. A prison doctor injects a condemned serial killer with a formula designed to keep his consciousness awake while his body rots in the grave. But all drugs have unforeseen side effects. Before he could be buried, the killer wakes up. Hungry, infected, contagious. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a bite. Yeah, I really like that synopsis, especially that last line. Not with a bang, but a bite. Which actually has some really interesting references. It's taken from a T.S. Eliot poem called The Hollow Men, which uh, the final stanza of the poem ends, this is the way the world ends, this is the way the world ends, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. So obviously it's kind of an homage to that, but uh, because this book deals with zombies throughout the book in different points, um, characters, well, the narrator and also the one of the characters, a mort- mortician named Doc, the Hartnip mentions or refers to the zombie type people as hollow men. And uh, yeah, that's where it kicks off. Uh, the synopsis is, uh, is basically chapter one or so of the novel. Mayberry sets up the pending zombie apocalypse in a very small town. Um, Homer Gibbons is again the serial killer. He's injected with this serum that's going to kind of give him consciousness after he's death, so he just basically suffers out until he rots, um, you know, in order to pay for his crimes. And uh, things go awry, and he winds up infecting another person who infects another person who infects another person, and so the zombie apocalypse uh, or potential apocalypse begins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's essentially how it starts out. There's um, several perspectives that we see from in this book, and... and the main ones are, are some of the, the local police officers, but there's also the mortician, who is one of the, the first victims of, uh, of a bite that turns him into a zombie, and then a handful of other people. And it's a um, very small-town situation that goes out of control really quickly. Yeah, the one of the terrific things about this is that uh, Mayberry takes us back to the origin. He, he actually gives us the origin, and it's one of the things that a lot of zombie authors either are afraid to tackle or don't feel the need to tackle and you know we talked a little bit about this on our zombie extravaganza spectacular you know so many i just love saying it did you wave your arms in the air of course i did just the one <laughs> just gotta wave it across the sky you just gotta show it nah, never mind anyway so many zombie stories and still even in this case aren't as much about the zombies as they are about how people handle the situation around them so it's an easy out for an author you know even writing a novel length or making a movie to kind of skip over the origin and for me personally and i'll relate this back to to vampire fiction you know 20 years ago when i was reading a lot of vampire fiction authors um 
uh, a lot of times glazed over um, how vampires came to be. And my thought process behind that was is that it's a really brave, brave thing to do because either you can come off as a genius or it can discredit your whole book if your origin is is garbage. So uh, maybe it gives us a very, very specific scientific reason for for the zombies that uh, you know that, that come to life. And man, it's it's really good. He takes us from patient zero, not to. Uh, not to quote another uh, book title of his, but he takes us, he starts us with patient zero and kind of moves us almost, you know, flow chart style through how the, the <laughs> spreads out throughout the town. Yeah. I'm with you. Um, I had a similar feeling uh, when, when the, <laughs> the actual explanation of how these zombies came to be happened. And I, I was, I was thinking to myself, man, he's going there, but then I was really glad he did because it was really well put together. And then the other refreshing thing that I thought that he did was that zombies, when people started coming back, you know, from the dead, the people like the the police and the the paramedics and everybody who was responding and just people that lived in the area had no idea what was going on. And and it took a long time for them to get to the point where they accepted the fact that these were zombies. Like they, they were really trying to figure out any other explanation because it just was unthinkable that it could be zombies so that was a really interesting approach but he pulled it off so well here's the thing i think that with the resurgence of zombie fiction recently um and zombie movies over the last few years you know i see somebody that's walking funny down the street and the first thing i think is zombie and it could just be somebody with like a bad limp (laughs) and the first thing i think is i've got to smash their brain in you know so i i don't know Maybe 10 years ago, five years ago, you know, people would, I, I don't know. You know, I say that half jokingly, you know, what do you do if something weird like that happens? I mean, is that your first thought is that they're a zombie or does your brain try to look for any other reasonable, non-supernatural, non-horror movie reason for why this is occurring? I think that not everybody is you. I think that the majority of the public, while they may know what zombies are in movies and stuff, doesn't have that, um, level of awareness that maybe you and I do about zombies. So, uh, yeah, I think that a lot of people will just be like, hey, what's wrong with this person? Maybe they, you know, broke a leg as a child or, you know, someone hit him with their car or something. Yeah, see, the other day I was standing outside work and I saw this homeless guy and he was kind of scruffy and he had like a bad limp like was dragging dragging his leg behind him and I was ready to try to get Ted Nugent's address and head to his <laughs> house. That's how I feel about it. Anything I see that's out of the ordinary, I brain things zombie. <laughs> well, yeah, you proved that to us when uh, some tremors from a faraway earthquake had you uh, thinking there was ghosts in your house. That's correct. Wow. But see, I will be prepared. You're going to be that guy. You're going to be that guy. Like some of these characters like, I don't know what's going on. It's really weird that all these people are dead and we can shoot them a hundred times and they keep getting back up. And I proved that when I, when we were the same conversation where I said that I would become a zombie very quickly. So we're remarkably consistent here. There you go. So <laughs> You would be, <laughs> you're going to be the one that kills me after I've turned into a zombie. Yeah. If I wait that long. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. All right. So back to some of the characters <laughs> here. Um, it, throughout the course of the book, I mean, we see this it, probably from 30 different perspectives, but there are a few um, key ones. And uh, 
two of those are the small town cops, um, Desdemona Fox, uh, known as Des throughout most of the book. She's that uh, haughty redneck cop with kind of like a bad attitude, with a lot of uh, a lot of abandonment issues and baggage behind her that uh, comes off as very very abrasive in every situation. And then uh, got her older uh, mentor, father figure, uh, cop partner JT. And uh, they're the the first two cops on the scene at the at the funeral home where uh, kind of patient zero uh, takes off, and they're who we see most of the story through their eyes, mostly through Dez's, I would say. Yeah, they're they're essentially the a plot characters, and um, the B kind of like going on. There's like other levels of characters like Billy Trout, who is a, a local investigative journalist, and uh, he's kind of painted as this lazy cynical kind of guy who doesn't really care about a lot about much and uh it seems like he can just kind of pretty much take anybody or leave them and uh he's got kind of a sidekick that works with him at the at his office and he i don't remember the full name but he's referred to as goat pretty much throughout the whole book and he's kind of like the tech guy for the um the the news company and uh obviously that's kind of integrated there's a lot of social media stuff that goes on when they're talking about um, news broadcasting and how stories are picked up and stuff. And so they talk a lot about Twitter and and YouTube and and stuff like that. So GOAT has a lot to do with those types of techie situations throughout the book. Then Doc Lee Hardnip, um, who Rob mentioned earlier, the mortician who is, uh, I guess, the second person to be infected with the virus, He's a really interesting character, and, and he only shows up in, in bits and pieces throughout the book, but he gives us the look at what happens to the human inside the zombie. So he has full consciousness, or at least his mind is conscious, um, inside the body of the zombie. And th- this is very, very early on in the book that you get this, so I don't want anyone to think we're just kind of giving away you know, the entire, the entire story here. But he's trapped in a body that he has no control over and forced to... <laughs> You know, take a ride along. Well, you know, while this this body, his body, his dead body, devours friends and family members and loved ones and people in his community. So, I mean, there's some really, really strong story points that uh, that come from the eyes of uh, Doc Hartnett. Yeah, that was one of the most unique and 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 pretty fantastic characters in the book. Like Olivia said, he doesn't show up much, but when he does, it's like it's such a refreshing perspective and like he said we're not spoiling it i think um lee is one of the first characters in the book that you get to see a perspective from and and so in the first few pages he's dead but still thinking about things so it's not like we're giving anything away but um i like the fact that he did this um looking from the perspective of a person whose body has become a zombie it's very cool um but the fact that he threaded that one character throughout essentially almost the entire book and and you got to to revisit the things that he's going through and the things the horror that he's feeling as the person who's doing these things and not having control over it was just such a cool way to look at things i thought it was really really unique and and really cool absolutely and then homer gibbons um as i referred to him patient zero um, a couple of times already he is uh again appears only sporadically throughout the book and um not as not as important a character to the story. I mean, his character is obviously important to story. Without him, none of this happens. But um, 
we get to see his a uh, little bit, but he's just your standard crazed serial killer versus the world, mm-hmm. basically. So, not a whole lot going on with him that's out of the ordinary. Obviously, not the best character in the book by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a really, I, I guess, fun little addition to see this kind of crazed perspective on what's going on. And then there's a cast of, like I said, at least a dozen other points of view that are, you know, here and there. Some of them are just uh, a victim in their final, you know, in their final <laughs> minutes or, or whatever. But, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on with, you know, the authorities and some government officials. And, you know, so there's different looks at uh, at the zombie outbreak in this small town. So something that comes up kind of regularly throughout the book, especially after um, the the whole zombie outbreak kind of gains momentum is is the government and the way that they react and and what they do uh in the face of this and it starts out obviously with the local police and, and that's just kind of a shitstorm. but then as things get bigger you know the national guard and the government gets involved and stuff and, and it's the thing that i found interesting about their reaction is is it's it's a it's not a in the you know not boots on the ground kind of response. It's more just like a more of a thought process response. Like in my mind, I'm thinking if if um, if I knew there was this area chock full of zombies, number one, I'd go nowhere near it. Number two, I'd be like, let's just waste everything that's anywhere close to that to make sure those zombies are gone. Um, it's it's cool to see that kind of detached perspective. In, in contrast to what the people are going through, actually, that are in the town. I agree. It also adds to the um, kind of frantic pace of this um, of this book. It the pace is is very very quick. Um, Mayberry uses the uh, the vehicle of very very short chapters. Basically, there's you know there's over a hundred chapters in the book. So when you're talking about it the breakdown, some of those chapters are a paragraph or two long, but I mean, you're looking at an average of 1% of the book being a chapter. So it, it switches mm-hmm. perspectives frequently and moves very, very quickly. And the whole book takes place in only about 24 hours, which has always been interesting to me, like our kind of real time, almost story, the way someone can write that. Mm-hmm. So I, I remember the first book I read or at least noticed, um, that in was, uh, the traveling, uh, the traveling vampire show by, um, Richard Lehman, I read that, I don't know, probably going on 16, 17 years ago, and that was the first one that took place in a 24-hour period, and I was just blown away at how someone could pack a story, a big story, that into that tight of a space and still, you know, pull it off really well. Yeah, he, it jumps around a lot. Those small chapters, you know, you're looking at stuff from the perspective of Dez and JT, then, you know, the next chapter with Billy and Goat, or... Billy and goat didn't think about that Billy goat anyway. <laughs> and then you're, and you're looking at it and then suddenly you're, you're seeing things as a zombie and then you're, you're seeing what the government's going on and then you're seeing Homer Gibbons and what's going on. It's, so it's, it jumps a lot, but I mean, they're the, all the different threads are so integral to what's going on and they, they weave together so well. It, it's, and give him credit. He did a great job of keeping a lot of information moving at a very consistently good pace. Yeah, and frequently what I find happens to me is when we have a lot of perspectives in a book, there's like that perspective or two that I'm bored with or don't really care for. And um, I didn't really find that in this book at all. I wanted to see what everybody was feeling or thinking or going through, and it, it managed to stay fresh throughout the book. Yeah, it seemed like everything was pretty well thought out. Um, it, he, he was thorough in the things that he did. Um, 
from everything from the, the explanation of how this whole zombie thing happened to, yeah, the involvement of all the characters. I mean, if, to my perspective, my, my impression is if there was something that wasn't, he was good at trimming the fat. If it wasn't, you know, necessary for the story, it seems like it just didn't make it into the book. Absolutely. Hey, here's something we haven't done before. Here, I'm just going to throw this out there. This isn't in our notes or anything. Who's your favorite character? That's tough. I Trout, Billy Trout, the investigative journalist. Yeah, I have to go with the doc. I think I like that zombie perspective so much. Like I said, even though it's a very small percentage of the book, I think that's that's uh, that's who my heart was with. Yeah, there's a lot of heart and a lot of emotion in that, and it's that that's a cool um, uh, juxtaposition because some of the most like profound emotions in the book come from a guy who is a zombie. So um, I could see that Billy Trout, though. I I think um, he's that kind of wasteoid doesn't care about anything, lost his passion in life. And, and as this, it, it's cool to see the way he rallies and, and, and comes kind of back to life when this whole zombie apocalypse falls right at his doorstep. Fishing for news with Billy Trout. <laughs> I did not make that up. That's, that's my quote from the book. That's my one quote for this week from the book. I missed that uh, got, one. Got, got it out early. Fishing for news with Billy Trout. It's on his business cards. <laughs> I missed it. I fully missed that. <laughs> Speaking of quotes, do you want to rock some quotes? Oh, you just... You I did just yours. did. Right. I did. And you called me out for reading entire passages. Now I go down like a five-word quote. <laughs> Fits on a business card. Okay, I do have a few quotes. Uh, this first one, I just like the, 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 the art of the words that were used. And it goes, The single word banged off the walls and burst apart into silent dust. Very nice. I like that. Mm -hmm. This next one is actually a conversation between the zombie Homer Gibbons and his aunt Selma. And, and uh, they're talking and then it describes her uh, kind of looking at him. And the quote is, his eyes were hidden by the shadows cast down from his heavy brow, but Selma could feel them on her, boring into her like slow drills. That was pretty cool. One of my, and I'm not, I don't want to give too, too much away here, but um, one of my favorite scenes in the book takes place between those two characters. All right. I'm not going to, I have like 15 really good ones, but um, another real quick one. And this is just because we love the doc so much. Um, doc Hartnip is, is witnessing uh, another zombie getting killed and he gets jealous. <laughs> and his, his kind of in, introspective thought is, how could a fat putz like Marty Goss deserve an actual death when Hartnup had to go on and on, floating like a dust moat inside a stolen body? It was wretchedly unfair. See, as I said, I love that character. I mean, that was just genius on Mayberry's part. Yeah, it, it was great. Okay, I'm just going to do one or two more. There's a couple that I had to do just because it made me think of moments in other episodes and stuff. <laughs> and especially on the heels of this past episode we did when we were talking about Stephen King. There's there's a character that's thinking about uh, a, a person who lives in town, and he's a writer, and uh, this is their description or their thought about him. He thought he was Stephen fucking King, and as far as Rempel was concerned, even Stephen fucking King wasn't Stephen fucking King. Not anymore. Not since The Stand. Last good book that New England prick ever wrote. <laughs> Hey, you know what? I, when I read that, I knew you were going to bring that up. I, I just knew it. Honestly, how couldn't I? It's true. Very true. 
And I'm going to end it off with this one quote, which uh, this is really emphasizes, or this really kind of brings home how I felt about the government's involvement in the book. It was so much easier to kill from 500 feet in the air. Hellfire missiles and sidewinders didn't have hearts that could break. And that was basically talking about the fact that the government's response was just, um, it, it was very heavy-handed, and if innocent civilians who weren't infected had to die, it seemed like that was a, a risk they were willing to take. So, I mean, and honestly, I have, I think, 13 quotes marked down, and all of them I'd love to, I'd love to give, but Olivia would probably stop doing this podcast if I just, you know, shouted out quote after quote after quote. So I'm going to end it right there. The spin-off podcast is just Rob reads lines <laughs> from books. Welcome to Rob's quotes. All right, you ready to wrap this one up? Yeah, um, why don't you go first? Yeah, here it is in a nutshell. This book's smart, it's fast-paced, it's thoughtful, and it's uh, just goddamn entertaining. Uh, maybe it keeps the zombie genre fresh um, with this novel, and I'm... Yeah, I keep thinking it's got to be coming. It's got to be coming to an end. People have got to be getting sick of zombies. But I'll tell you, as long as uh, as authors like Mayberry keep giving fresh, fast-paced perspectives like this, um, we're going to be seeing a lot more zombie fiction in the future. It's got some great concepts at work here. A very scientific origin that's believable. You've got, uh, yeah, as I'm, we mentioned now, ad nauseum, the doc and that human look through zombie eyes, um, which is fantastic. Um, authority reactions, you know, from local authorities to the government, and even, you know, the the kind of traps and corners he paints his characters into and then, you know, figures out interesting ways to, to get them out of there. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot he could have done better here, and it's going to be a four-and-a-half-star review from me. Well, Livius did all the heavy lifting. Practically everything he just said that was great about this book, I fully... 100% agree with. He did every all the things that Olivia said wonderfully, and I think it was uh, probably the, one of the most refreshing looks at, at something that I've, I've been for a while now thinking is kind of a tired genre. Um, he did it better than I could have expected. Um, this is probably the most excited I've been about zombies, at, at least a serious zombie story. Uh, I don't want... Craig Wahlberg to take offense, <laughs> but um, this is probably the most excited I've been about zombies um, in a long time. I, I think it was a wonderful book, and and the thing that I thought to myself, and I was telling Olivia this earlier, was as I was reading it, this is the zombie movie that I want to see. It just it just is mind blowingly good, and it's a fantastic book. And it originally in my mind had been planning to give it four stars, but I'm just going to bump it up to four and a half because the more I think about it, the more we talk about it. I mean, there's, it's just an incredible book. I think everybody, anybody who's even remotely interested in zombies or just a well-written book should check this out. Four and a half stars. You know what? That's a good point. I mean, just anybody who's looking for a good, fast-paced action book, I think, um, I think could enjoy this. I mean, there's just a lot going on, even if you're not a fan of the zombie genre. I think that, you know, he does it in a way that uh, it could give you an appreciation of zombies if you don't have one already. Absolutely. A uh, little bit more on uh, Jonathan Mayberry. I've mentioned this on a couple of episodes already. Huge fan of his Joe Ledger series. Um, uh, again, those books are very tight and fast-paced. Um, Ledger uh, his uh, uh, heads up a, a squad of, I don't even know what you're saying, They're like this kind of covert government organization that uh, is like an anti-terrorist group, but the terrorists they deal with um, 
do things like create zombie plagues and, and that type of thing. So um, I haven't read anything else from uh, Mr. Mayberry, but uh, I love the Joe Ledger series. And after reading Dead of Night, I'm pretty sure I will be digging a little further into his catalog here. But definitely read Dead of Night. And then after that, read all the Joe Mayberry stuff. I think we're on book three now with a fourth one coming up next year that hopefully we'll be talking about on the show. All right. And then uh, a couple just quick news worthy things that have come up in the, what, five days or so since we <laughs> recorded our last podcast. In the previous episode, we talked a little bit about the Kindle owners lending library and uh, the Kindle fire in general. And I know that I, I got all boasty about how Amazon's got this great plan and, uh, and it seems like they're a bit untouchable right now. And I think literally <laughs> the same day or, or within, you know, hours of, of us recording that and definitely before I actually edited the episode, Barnes & Noble announced their Nook tablet, which is, uh, <laughs> which is due to be released. I think it's the same day or the day after the Kindle Fire comes out. Mm-hmm. And um, it looks pretty damn cool. <laughs> I can talk a little bit about the specs on it. Very similar to the Kindle Fire, uh, as I mean, screen size, the the processor it uses. Um, the Nook tablet's got a gigabyte of RAM, whereas the Kindle Fire's got 512 megabytes. Uh, the Nook tablet's actually got twice the actual internal memory at 16 gigabytes to Kindle Fire's 8 gigabytes. So. Um, yeah, it's 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 a little beefier in the in the memory department. It's also got the option for external storage, so you could use micro SD cards, and and boost up another thirty two up to two thirty two gigabytes of space. And the Kindle Fire doesn't have that option, so um, Barnes and Noble came out swinging a little bit with this new tablet of theirs. Yeah, I, I definitely have to agree. And and the one thing I want to say, and this I run into this a lot in. Yeah, my non-podcast life, but even in talking to friends and stuff and other avid readers, um, do want to stress that these are tablets, um, and what that means is that you know their their primary function is not to read books. They have an operating system very similar, or uh, they're going to be locked down a little bit, but they'll still be very similar to um, you know an Android smartphone. So when we start talking about processors and gigs of RAM and and everything else. You know, the important thing to remember is that yeah, you don't ever hear anybody talk about the processor in a, you know, in a Kindle keyboard or in a Kindle touch <laughs> because, you know what, yeah, is there a processor? I'm assuming there has to be, but you're doing such a basic function that you don't need it. Where that becomes really important with these tablets is um if you want to play Angry Birds or if you're going to surf the internet or you're going to run various applications. I mean, these are they are readers in so much as any tablet is a reader, but they're definitely not built to be readers. They're built to be mini computers. So, Yeah, they're definitely, at worst, kind of a hybrid between a reader and a tablet. But, I mean, for the most part, fully functioning tablets. And, and notable differences between the Nook Color, which was kind of Barnes & Noble's badass reader um, up until this point, and the Nook Tablet is that it looks like Barnes & Noble's on board with both Hulu Plus and Netflix. So... Uh, the the streaming capability for TV and movies is is right there, um, and that's a huge difference. No color doesn't have that. Kindle Fire's obviously got access to through the the Amazon Prime account, the all the streaming video and TV and and music that uh, Amazon has available. So Barnes and Noble's really going for that that full tablet experience uh, with this. It's kind of a, a nice step up. One thing that. Um, is a little obviously different between the Fire and the ta- the Nook tablet is um, 
Kindle Fire's starting price is 199 bucks. Nook Tablet's dropping at 249. I don't know if there's going to be any changes to that or anything, but for right now, Nook Tablet's going to be 50 bucks more expensive. Yeah, I don't. I don't think they're gonna. It's gonna stay at 250. And here's the reason behind that: they just dropped their Nook Color to 200, which is very similar to the Kindle Fire in specs. So, yeah, yeah they've got their they, they've got their 200 tablet until it runs out. I'm I'm pretty sure that the Nook Color is probably out of production at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll just sell through whatever you know stock is left and empty their warehouses, and that'll be that for the Nook Color. Um, again, you know what? I, I can't stress this enough, and you know, I, I talk to people on a daily basis about this. If you really just want to read books, if that's really what you do, and if you've listened to you know fifty episodes of this podcast, I'm gonna guess you spend a lot of time doing that. Uh, get yourself a regular Kindle, get the seventy nine dollar Kindle, get the one with three G <laughs> if you need it. Read books if you want to. Like I said, a, a giant cell phone, and and trust me, I have two tablets. I have a seven inch tablet. It's very similar specs to, um, and probably more towards the Kindle Fire than the than the Nook tablet that's coming out. Um, they're great for being on Twitter and Facebook, and you know, keeping track of your calendar events and email. Uh, they're okay as readers. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if you want a real reader? Buy yourself a. I mean, go with the Nook one if you want the Nook. Uh, the uh, I forget what they're called. The Nook Touch is that what it is? They're regular. Dropped to ninety nine bucks too. Nook Simple, I think it's called. Yeah, yeah, that's ninety nine bucks now. Uh, still a great little unit. You are kind of locked into buying from Barnes and Noble, and that's where my. Uh, they said for a tablet, I'd go with the Nook because of the better specs. And being an Android user myself, I know how important that extra five twelve uh, of RAM could be. But uh, as a reader, I got to stick with Amazon and the Kindle. Mm-hmm. Another competitive edge that I think Barnes and Noble is trying to go for is the in store experience. Um, Already, you know, obviously you can buy a Nook tablet in Barnes & Noble stores, but they're actually installing kiosks, Nook stations are being called. And essentially, obviously, they have display models of all the different Nooks. You can get your hands on them and see how they feel, see how they look. Um, I have to imagine that there's probably going to be some level of service in the store if there's tr- you're having trouble with your Nook or need help getting started. Um, I'm sure that that's going to be a big push for Barnes & Noble is getting people... Uh, well educated about how to use their devices, and then um, there's got to be probably some other stuff that they're gonna they're gonna launch in addition to that. But uh, so that competitive edge of actually having the capability of walking into a store, getting your hands on it, and, and buying it right there is probably uh, something that Barnes and Noble is pretty excited about. Yeah, I just had a nightmare thought having <laughs> that job and then trying to explain like fragmentation to a like 65 year old woman who will. <laughs> Who buys a two hundred and fifty dollar tablet so she can borrow books from her local library? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yikes! To be completely honest, I'm I'm kind of Kindle Amazon biased just because I've used a couple Kindles and and they've been fantastic experiences. But looking at this lineup, Barnes and Noble has a, a really really good lineup of of a variety of readers now, and and I don't see any reason not to buy one. They're, they look pretty great. Yeah, and let's let's call a spade a spade. You know, we mentioned that Amazon could send us uh, Kindle Fires if they wanted us to use them and review them, and they didn't. So, eh, why not talk up the competition? <laughs> That's right. Fair and balanced. Oh, I don't want to say that. That's so tainted now. Um, anyway, let's just let's just move on. <laughs> okay. Oh, speaking of taint, this came across um, from David James Keaton on Facebook today. Is where I first saw it, and subsequently I saw some other people share it too. But 
There's a book that came out uh, earlier this month uh, called Assassin of Secrets. And if you uh, haven't heard of this yet, uh, it was put together by Q.R. Markham, um, which is a pen name for a Brooklyn bookseller and poet named Quentin Rowan. And what makes this <laughs> notable book is the fact that it has now been pulled from shelves. Um, would you like to tell people why it's been pulled from shelves, Rob? Yeah, evidently the book plagiarizes <laughs> heavily from not just one source, but it it looks like a bunch of different sources, including um, John Gardner's James Bond novels, um, Robert Ludlum, Charles McCary, um, and and Livius was very looked <laughs> very amused on the phone earlier when he was telling me about this. There's actually at one point in the book, there's a six page section that's copied basically word for word from the book called License Renewed, uh, with obviously names changed, but otherwise. It's practically verbatim, six whole pages taken from another book. <laughs> uh, and, and and here's the interesting thing, you know, now the uh, the internet community, or you know, they're they're getting ready to cure cancer and all the other great things that come from from you know weird internet communities. And um, it, this came about James Bond fan forum. That's that's uh that's who busted this guy out. I mean. Quite honestly, I wouldn't have thought there was a James Bond fan forum, but apparently there is. And uh, someone on the Reddit said, "Man, this sounds kind of familiar," and went through and thumbed through some other uh, James Bond books and found some. Uh, yeah, you can't even say similarities; just straight up plagiarism. One of the more sickening things about it is that um, after after this whole scandal broke, I, I found a, an article in the Huffington Post just now or earlier today where after this whole scandal broke and uh, and the, the book got recalled and everything, its Amazon ranking jumped from 62,924, in, I'm assuming in regular books, uh, to 174. Well, there's, within, a marketing, there's a marketing strategy for you. Yeah, within the span of 24 hours, it jumped to the top 200 books on Amazon and uh, was considered... <laughs> number two on their movers and shakers list. So I guess if that was the marketing ploy, it worked incredibly. It, crazy, crazy situation. Well, let's let's kind of analyze this a little bit. So he, he, this guy, he, he takes from James Bond, that, that is a household name. Granted that, you know, the books necessarily aren't, but, you know, they're all Cold War espionage stuff. So I'm sure there's people who pick up every new James Bond book as they come out, Yeah, I don't know, whatever, maybe once a year now. Mm-hmm. It, and then markets his book in the exact same category, like espionage, Cold War thriller, and doesn't think anybody's going to come up. So I have to guess in espionage and long-running espionage series, James Bond, probably pretty high up there. Top three to five, maybe. I, I don't know. I, just a guess. It's a household name. So I have to guess that for people who are into that, there are a lot of those books bought and read. So he plagiarizes that to put it in you know, a book that's basically a James Bond copy. You have to just question the intelligence. It's not like he went back 30 or 40 years and got some, some little known book. I mean, the books he's plagiarizing are from the last few years. I mean, um, I, I don't know for a fact, but I mean, license renewed is a James Bond book that I think is no more than 10 or 12 years old. <laughs> so it's not like he went back to the forties and grabbed a spy book that, you know, his neighbor's granddaddy wrote that nobody bought and, you know, and plagiarized that he's plagiarizing some fairly popular stuff. And this just my um, my cynical nature and everything. My one of my thoughts goes to you know it could have been done on purpose for publicity. Obviously, um, not so long ago, James Frey got 
called out for for writing a book that was supposed to be a, a true life, you know, situation that ended up being very very fictional. And one of the side effects from from that scandal was that he's far better known than he probably ever would have been, uh, just from having his book published and being on the Oprah's reading book list or whatever. Yeah, I yeah. Yeah, I just, again, I would have to question the intelligence here, though. I mean, being a plagiarist is, uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's, that's, the difference is Frey put a book out there and said, oh, this is autobiographical, and then someone busted it on him, on it not being biographical, but it was still his writing. And, you know, one of the issues I had when I first, and I'd never read a billion little pieces or whatever that book was called, but... Um, my thought is, you know, was it any less good a book? So if I read it and really liked it, then I found out it wasn't autobiographical. Does that change the fact that the story was really good? Now, to me, being a almost strictly fiction reader, who cares? The book was good. The writing was good. Whatever. You know, if it, he passed it off as something that it wasn't, oh, well. This guy just flat out went and took, you know, he said six-page spans of someone else's book and verbatim put him in his. So he's not even a writer. That's true. Yeah, I mean, this well, is this is a guy with a photocopy machine. So <laughs> he works it. Wait, the the don't say the it. Next, <laughs> um, anyway, I, but yeah, I, I understand. But what I'm proposing is a bit of a stretch of the imagination. But at the same time, now we all know the name QR Markham, and if something else comes up, at least we'll have something, some bit of recognition that may cause us the curiosity to say, well, you know, what's what's going on now? What's what's this about? If he comes out with something new later on. That's true. Very good. All right. Got anything, all. Else? Got anything else for the folks listening uh, on Stitcher? No. Um, I, I think that uh, that's, that's all I really had. I wanted to make sure that we gave some fair coverage to the Nook tablet so that we're, we're getting the, the good news about all the great ways to read out there. Cool. Why you? You got anything else? No. I think I'm good. Um, all right, so if anybody at Barnes & Noble needs to get a hold of us because they want to send us one of their tablets, um, they can reach us at bookpodcast at gmail.com um, or they can just comment in a thread under this episode at bookpodcast.com. That's right. Um, and so if, can anyone else. It's not just for the people at Barnes & Noble. Amazon, you get that email too. <laughs> yeah, you guys better race to see who gets there first. The first comment we get, those are the tablets that we're taking for free. Yep. That, yeah. So you're listening to us somewhere, somehow, but if you're looking for a better way, here's the ways you can find us. Obviously, the wildly successful Zoom marketplace, which is probably where everybody's listening to us from. But if you're not coming from Zoom, you can also get us on iTunes. You can get us on our website, bookpodcast.com, and the ever-popular and awesome Stitcher. Stitcher is smart radio, and it's the smarter way to listen to booked podcasts. I think that's what they're... Uh, I think that's what their marketing strategy is. Smarter way to listen to booked. Yes. Smart radio for smart people. That's right. <laughs> that was so disingenuous. Uh, I was going to say, yeah, I guess we're not getting that gig where we do the advertising for them either. No. Yeah. As hard as we may try, I guess it's not going to happen. All right. Now that that's out of the way, Livius, how about you tell everybody what we're going to be? We're back on track with, uh, with telling people in advance. <laughs> the next book we're reading. So, uh, Livius, you want to let everybody know what's coming up next? Absolutely. Um, over the last, I don't know, two or three last episodes or so, we talked about Blasted Heath, the new press um, that uh, 
launched on November 1st, just uh, just a few short days ago. And uh, we're going to be reading uh, one of their launch titles, Dead Money by Ray Banks. Another British author. We like our British authors here on, uh, on Booked. We do, as long as they don't say... Um Disorientated. Disorient, yeah, as long as they don't say disorientated. Yeah, I'm going to pull up and just do a search for that word now. I think I'm on Kindle and see what, uh, what's what. So, yeah, so definitely a blasted heathen Ray Banks will be featured on our next episode with Dead Money. Looking forward to that. All right, um, unless Livius hushes me again, I think that's all we've got for this episode of Booked. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livius Ned, and keep reading. Oh!